Good morning. Our second reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women committed to them and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The word of the Lord. So as the kids go out, I wanted to start this morning by asking you a quick question. Do you like living in Vienna? I mean, how many of you actually live here or nearby? Most of you probably live. Do you like living here? Yeah? It seems a pretty decent place to live to me. You got good coffee, Cafe Amori, good muffins, whole food, and good beer, caboose. What more do you want? But I wonder how many of you made a very conscious decision that Vienna was it. This was the place that you intended to come and live or, uh, you know, make your home and maybe even work here. Was that a conscious choice that you made? A prayerful choice, maybe? Or are you somewhat surprised to find yourself here? This wasn't where you expected to be. This is not where you expected to end up, despite Vienna's many charms. This is not exactly where you were expecting to be. I ask the question because I wonder if you see where you live as an intentional thing or just a convenient thing. If you see where you live and actually where you work as somehow part of God's plan for your life, but also for His church. And I want to talk about that a little bit through the book of Acts. We are reading through the book of Acts as a church which is uh, the book of Acts to me, is a very interesting document. It's one of those parts of the Scriptures where you, I realize that when you read the book of Acts, you have to take off your teaching mode. The book of Acts is not really teaching. There are little bits of teaching. It's an account of what happened to the early church. And it's there for you and I to look at and gaze and think and wonder what is going on. How is God working? What does God seem to do? There's not a great deal of teaching, and it just reminds that Scripture, it reminds me that Scripture is diverse. It's diverse in the types of literature it presents us. So Acts doesn't go into a great deal of teaching. There's not a great deal of theology. It simply lays out what is happening to the early church. So I want to spend a few minutes this morning looking at one particular pattern that many observers have seen through the book of Acts. The many commentators looking at the book of Acts have seen this, that the early church, the phenomenal spread of the early church through the ancient Near Eastern world happened through cities, that the spread, the phenomenal spread of the early church through the ancient Near Eastern pagan world happened through cities. 
And I want to suggest to you to this morning that you've got to love the city even if you don't. If you love the gospel, you've got to love the city even if you don't. Probe me and then we'll have a little look at this passage from Acts. So Father God, this morning, we pray that as we listen to your word, as we dwell on your purposes, Jesus, that you would speak to us as individuals where we are today, not in general, but individually and particularly to each of our hearts. Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence here, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do you get into the city in this passage from Acts? As you remember from last week, Acts 7, you saw, or we saw, you see the first martyrdom. Martyrdom seems to me a rather polite word, the first murder of a Christian. It's murder, straightforward murder. Stephen, a man described as full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs, so doing great things, good things among the people, is brought before the religious council to explain himself. What are you doing, Stephen? Who gave you authority? Who says you can do this stuff? And Stephen goes into a long riff on the history of Israel, and basically the riff is about how God's people constantly miss what God is doing. You stiff-necked people, Stephen says, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Strong words. And the religious council get the point of Stephen's rap, and they thank Stephen for it by stoning him to death. And that begins the first great persecution of the church. And in Acts 8, we read, And there arose on that day a great persecution. This is the first, but it's not going to be the last. The first great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I don't really know why the apostles weren't scattered. It just recorded there for you to wonder about. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's something that constantly strikes me. I used to work a little while ago before I became a religious professional and ended up speaking to you in Vienna. I don't know how that happened quite. But I used to work in documentary filmmaking. And documentary filmmaking works like this, is you gather film footage of your subject, say I'm making a documentary on Johnny. So I follow him around with a camera for a while, and after a while I get an idea in my head. I think this is what Johnny's life is about. And I get a theme, an idea for the documentary film. And so then I go on following Johnny as he does the strange things that he does as his life as a pastor. And then the irritating thing is that the things that Johnny does doesn't fit neatly into my idea. He does lots of odd things that you'd never think a pastor would do. You can imagine. No, I'm, don't. <laughs> don't go there. That life does not fit neat patterns. And it's a great reassurance to me when I read the accounts in the Scriptures of things like the genealogy of Jesus. If you've ever read through a genealogy, I'm sure you've done that many times if you want to go to sleep at night. But it's just interesting that in the genealogy is recorded prostitutes and traitors as direct lineage of Jesus. You wouldn't do that unless it was actually true. The first evangelist was a Samaritan, not good, woman for the day. Women were not considered reliable enough to be a witness in court. So you're choosing somebody who's a mixed race person and a woman to be your first evangelist? That's inconvenient 
if you're just building a story, which is not really true. The first witnesses to the, first witnesses to the resurrection were also women, again, inconvenient in a Jewish world, unless it was actually just true. And here we get the account of Saul. Saul, who will be Paul for us, who writes large parts of the New Testament. And we meet him, noble Paul, looking on and approving of Stephen's murder. Saul approved. He liked it. Well done of Stephen's execution. And then a little bit later, we hear that this man, Saul, is extremely aggressive. This is not a nice man. But Saul, actually Paul, yes, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. Can you really imagine what that was like? He's forcing himself into people's houses. He dragged off, not his people, he, Saul, dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Interesting, right? But here, ironically, even though Saul seems to be working against God's purposes, and yet, already, God is beginning to work through Saul's life. Because what happens as a result of Saul's persecution, ironically, is this. And we read in Acts 8.4. Now those who were scattered because of Saul's persecution, what did they do? They went about, they went out, preaching the word, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Philip, we hear recorded, Philip, who was one of the seven, you know, there are the 12 apostles, and then there are the seven who get chosen by the 12. You know that? It's a bit like uh, the Lord of the Rings, right? If you think about the Fellowship of the Ring, there's that moment, do you remember, in Rivendell, where there's a sort of choosing of the fellowship. And there's the, all the sort of wise guys around who choose, the, choose I think it's not nine, isn't it, in the Fellowship of the Rings? Have you seen it? Yes, okay. <laughs> Philip is like one of the guys who gets sent out. Philip and Stephen are, one, are, to, are of the seven. So these are leaders. They're gifted people. They've got a lot to give. I've got to know a number of you in uh, a Christ church. And the more I get to know you, the more I realize this is a gifted church. So a lot of people with, a, with serious gifts. These seven had wisdom, authority, and ability. So God, where God sends these people, where God sends Philip, is not some sort of accident. These are chosen leaders. It matters where they're going to go. Where does God send Philip? He sends Philip to the city. And as Philip goes to the city, so we see the pattern set for how the gospel will spread through the ancient world. This is a, a quote from Tim Keller who's written a lot about if you want to look at um, anything and really understand the strategic importance of the city, go and read some of t uh, what t Tim Keller writes about the city. This is what he says. We see throughout the rest of the book of Acts the way Christianity reached an area was it reached the city. How do you reach Samaria? How? You go to the city of Samaria. How do you reach the intellectuals? You go to the city of the intellectuals, Athens. Paul went to Athens. He went to Ephesus. Why? It was the religious center. It was the seat of all the various religious cults, all the competitors to Christianity. He went to Rome. It was the power center. Paul went to the Boston of the day, the New York of the day, the LA of the day, and the Washington, D.C. of the day. 
When I first came to Washington, D.C., I knew where I was coming. I was coming to Rome. Washington, D.C. is the Rome of our day. The most powerful nation on earth and the capital city of the most powerful nation of earth on, on today. Now, I don't know whether or not you really like cities. I have had a sort of ambivalent experience. I grew up in London, a big city. Sometimes I loved it, sometimes I hated it. I've spent a lot of time trying to get away from the city. I seem to keep coming back to it. Maybe you feel a bit like the psalmist in Psalm 55, and you'd say of the city, and I don't know whether you'd even consider yourself to living in the city of Washington, D.C. or being part of it. But maybe you see cities like this. This is what the psalmist wrote. Lord, confuse the wicked, confound their words, for I see violence and strife in the city. Do you see violence and strife in the city? Perhaps a little bit of that going on. Day and night they prowl about on its walls. Malice and abuse are within it. Sound vaguely familiar? Perhaps? I don't know. Destructive forces are at work. Where? In the city. Threats and lies never leave its streets. Cities are difficult places, right? They're not easy places. We read a little bit from Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah, who really represents Israel, is sent where to preach about God? To a city, the city of Nineveh. Reluctantly, after a little incident with a whale, he finally goes. But once he's gone and done his business in the city, what does he do? I'm out of there. And he goes and he sits on a hill in a sort of leafy suburb, shall we say, and he watches. He says, I wonder what God's going to do to that city. What's God going to do? I'm going to sit here, and God provides a little plant, shady plant, so that you can sit in comfort and watch what God's going to do to the city. And the city actually repents, and so Jonah is furious. God, you're supposed to bring fire and brimstone on this, e brimstone down on this evil place, but not at all. I've lost this quote. Have we got that quote from Jonah? And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, this plant that grew up to make Jonah comfortable. You did not make it grow when it came in being in a night and perished in a night. And you should, should I not pity Nineveh, God says. Look, you're out for your own comfort, but should I not care, God says, for that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much capital, cattle. We've got to know that God cares about the city. I want to show you a little bit what I've been doing in a part of the city, not far from you. And I chose this part of the world because it seemed to me strategic, and I'm talking about the Mosaic District. And we've been running Alpha um, in uh, uh, the Mosaic District in the Angelica Film Center. And the, uh, the Angelica Film Center is right in the heart of the Mosaic District. And it's been great. We've got a number of churches. You guys have been involved in that. So can we just go, th uh, go through the slides quickly? And uh, we had a little lady out there with um, a great big uh, question mark. And we actually had 10 people come off the streets to come into the cinema to eat with us and watch a film about Jesus. And we had five uh, young men 
who turned up off the streets looking as if they were probably Middle Eastern in origin, and they came in, and I thought, oh, wow. And I thought that it was great. They came in and to eat, and I was kind of trying to watch them as they watched this film about Jesus, and I thought, well, it's great that they've at least seen this film about Jesus. I'm sure they'll go. They won't hang out. They won't stay for the discussion part, but they did. They stayed for the discussion part, and they went to a bar with some other people, and they talked about Jesus. And this is the cinema. We pretty well packed the cinema out. It's just short of 100. And that was really just me and some other folk saying, how do we love the city? How do we care for the city? I don't want to pretend it went perfectly. Just to show the last slide. There were some things that didn't go so well. Some of the bars were a bit too noisy. The conversations were a little bit difficult. Some were really good, some were not so good. But it was a really interesting and ongoing positive experience. But I'll tell you why I think Mosaic is kind of strategic and it's kind of symptomatic of North American cities. How many of you have actually been down to Mosaic? Have you sat there on a Friday night in that sort of green space where there's the artificial turf? You can now play soccer on without worrying about it. The whole world is there, right? It is about as diverse as you could possibly get. You have Korean folk, Arab folk, African American, a lot of East Europeans, much to my surprise. You go into that little cafe there, there are a lot of East Europeans. It's an incredibly diverse part of this city that we live in. And actually, that is fairly typical of what is going on in North America. The world is becoming increasingly urban. The number of people, I don't know if we've got these quotes, I've got slightly out of order here, but the number of people living in cities, and this is across the world, will almost double to some 6.4 billion by 2050. That's a lot of people, just in case you hadn't thought. Turning much of the world into a global city, that's where we're going. That's the inevitable drift. In 2015, if we can have that next quote, over a billion people migrated. We're living in a world of migration, that means people movement, on a scale that has never been seen beyond anything that anybody has ever seen. Not just talking about immigration, talking about migration, people moving. 244 million, that's in one year, 244 million people went abroad. That is, they immigrated somewhere. And 763 million moved within their home country. Some boarded planes to start a new job in another country. Some risked their lives in overcrowded boats, fleeing war or famine. And others left the countryside in search of jobs and a better quality of life. What the vast majority have in common is that they ended up moving to a city. So that's really what I want to present to you this morning, just to leave you to think about that. Because I can tell you, learning to do gospel-shaped ministry in cities is hard. And it's not getting easier. It's getting more difficult. But the temptation, therefore, is to retreat, isn't it, to somewhere shady. 
where we can sit and hope that God will provide us with the comforts that we need. And I'm not pointing a finger at anybody. I live in the suburb as well. But what we see in the book of Acts is that if we care, as I know Christ Church Vienna does, about gospel and the mission of the gospel, then we have to learn how to get into the city. We have to learn how to love the city. This is what happened and what we read at the end of that passage we read from the, the book of Acts. This is as a result of persecution. I've noticed sometimes that if you hang around long enough, God will figure a way to persecute you <laughs> into doing what you really ought to be doing. You can wait for that if you like, or you can pray and listen to God and ask, what should I do? Where should I live? Where should I work? But anyway, as a result of the persecution of the church and the movement of the Spirit, this is what happened. Philip goes down to the city of Samaria. Samaria is the last place on earth you would go as a God-fearing Jew. If you're Harry Potter fans, the Samaritans are half-bloods, mud-bloods. They're mixed. They're worse than Gentiles. They're kind of a mix between Gentile and Jew. How could you get any worse? Last place. Philip goes down to uh, the city of Samaria, and this is what is recorded as happening. And the crowds in that city with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. The gospel came to that city, and there was transformation and healing. And what was the result of all that, the result of persecution in the spirit? There was much joy in that city. There was much joy. And here's the thing. I'll finish with this. If joy was brought to the city and the world is in the city or coming to it, then joy in the city means healing for the world. Do you get that? If bringing the gospel into the city brings transformation which leads to joy, then joy in the city, because that's where the world is going, whether we like it or not, it doesn't really matter whether you love it or not, that's just what's happening, then joy in the city will bring healing for the world. Shall we pray? So Lord, as we've been looking at the record of how you moved through the ancient world. And as we continue to worship this morning, and we think about our own lives, and we think about where we are, who we are next to, where we live, where we work, and perhaps just ask the question, Lord, what's the purpose of where I am? Is this where I'm supposed to be? Is there a strategic purpose, if you will, a gospel purpose to where you've placed me. Father, as we continue to worship and take communion together, I pray you continue to speak to us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.